1: I'm Brittany Luce, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, a show about what's going on in culture and why it doesn't happen by accident. Now today, we're going to take it way back, all the way back to my college days. What is the song you most associate with your college years?
2: It was... Damn by Youngbloods that was my song and then when the beat changed and they said and I'm for sure with it don't so make me pop that truck to the left cause I would go get it and I'm not selfish I would let you and your fill it I loved it I was in the clubs going crazy
1: that's Aisha Roscoe You might know her as one of the hosts of NPR's Weekend Edition, but she's also the editor of a new book of essays called HBCU Made, a celebration of the Black college experience. Aisha, like me, is a graduate of Howard University, a historically Black college or university also known as an HBCU. And Howard is just one of about 100 HBCUs in the country. Chatting with her about this book was like a mini homecoming. Aisha and I attended Howard around the same time, so we likely went to some of the same parties, knew some of the same people, and we definitely ate at the same dining halls. What was your order on Soul Food Thursday?
2: Oh, definitely. I, I mean, I just got the fried chicken. I was into the fried chicken. I would get the hot sauce.
1: But what size did you get? Did you trust the macaroni and cheese?
2: I'm not a big size Are you person. Sure? Don't make me hang up.
1: You're not a size person. What does that mean? Mac
2: and cheese is okay, I, but I'm not eating that. I'm definitely not eating no greens. You're from North Carolina? I'm from North Carolina. No greens. look, no, I don't like the greens.
1: Now, even though I will never get over the fact that Aisha doesn't like greens... That difference points to the diversity of the Black experience that makes HBCUs so great. I sat down with Aisha to talk about the book of essays, what makes the culture of HBCUs unique, and where we can see their influence on mainstream American culture. Aisha Roscoe, welcome back to It's Been a Minute.
2: Yes, I'm so glad to be here.
1: Oh my gosh, it's always a pleasure to speak to a fellow Bison. And yeah. honestly, you being a fellow Bison, a fellow graduate of Howard was one of the, the things that made me so excited about joining NPR. Oh, thank you. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And I think that kind of speaks to something that we're going to be getting into today, the sort of like enduring tie of HBCUs. Now, College enrollment is down generally and also down among black students. But there's been a surge of applications at HBCUs specifically. And you and I both went to Howard in the aughts, Yes. you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago. Maybe something like that. Maybe something like that. So you can call <laughs> us in a way trendsetters for yeah. the next generation. Okay. Exactly. You could. Yes. You could. Yes. When I would tell non-black people that I was going to Howard. Mostly only older, I would say, older people understood the significance. Yes. But why do you think HBCUs have gotten so popular, more popular recently?
2: I mean, I think Beyonce, Homecoming, like, I think that was a mm-hmm. huge moment. Coachella, you ready?
1: Let's go get on.
2: You had her putting... Her stamp of approval on it. Then you had like Deion Sanders going to Jackson State. And like, when you look at a different world, the show, which mm-hmm. I mean, so many people in my book talk about, they look so cool, they were having so much fun, like, all this stuff. <laughs> Then you have Kamala Harris, who's also a Howard graduate. Yes, she is. You have people talking about this idea of like, why aren't we supporting our own institutions? I think that played a role in Mm. it. So I I think a lot of things were coming together at the same time.
1: Yeah, no, I definitely saw all of that happening in the culture. And and also to your point about questioning why Black people don't support our own organizations as much as maybe we could. It makes me think of like even... After June 2020, you know, the so-called yeah. racial reckoning. Yeah. One of the yeah, intra-community yeah, conversations that black people were having amongst ourselves was how we're thinking about HBCUs alongside these predominantly white institutions. Yes. Call them PWIs for short. There were a lot of calls in the public for PWIs to get more Black professors and get more Black administrators. But HBCUs were explicitly created for black student body and already had. Many uh, of you know, people in faculty administration who look like us. So it, it also, I think, presents as like a strong option to be able to be in a comfortable and supportive educational environment.
2: I mean, HBCUs are not going to be the fit for every black person. Mm-hmm. But I think that what HBCUs offer is a place that can be a safe haven. It can be from having to constantly prove your humanity, Mm. from having to constantly prove your ability to think and your worth. It's not that you're not challenged, but it's not people looking at you like, well, why are you even here? How did you get in? Did you sneak in through the back door? I think that does
1: absolutely make a difference. Yes, 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 yes. As we were preparing to talk to you, Our editor, Jessica, who's not a black woman, but also is a woman of color, had mentioned that as somebody who's sort of looking from the outside in at HBCU culture, that it raises the importance of affinity spaces for Mm. marginalized people. And I thought that that was so interesting because, you know, in some senses, it's been interesting to talk to people who aren't from the HBCU world Mm. uh, and getting ready to talk to you because I'm so in it. Uh, There are people, in my opinion, goofy people who think about an HBCU as like an institution about excluding non-Black people. To me, that's goofy because like many HBCUs were founded because black people were excluded from going to other colleges. And, like, and,
2: and HBCUs <laughs> have not excluded. What, like, white people go to, to um, HBCUs. Yeah. Yeah, like Jewish people that would go to um, medical schools because they were shut out of other—they would go to black medical schools because mm-hmm. they were shut out of other ones. And white people were, did go to—do go to Howard. Like, you would see white yeah. people there. Like, they were—they're yeah. all, were, always allowed—
1: You know, it was like, they were always allowed. Exactly. The difference is, there were literal schools, (coughs) Ivy League. Didn't allow us. Ivy League that y'all love so much that were literally (laughs) saying, don't come, you can't come in. People of all ethnicities and all racial backgrounds are allowed to come to Howard. And there are some HBCUs that over time have have become, you know, I have a majority white or sizable white student body, but I have been thinking about how remarkable and incredible it is that HBCUs are a space that began as the product of exclusion. And over time, they've become, as opposed to the place that you have to go, because mm-hmm. you can't go someplace else, you're not allowed yeah. to be someplace else. They have become, in some many senses always were, a safe space that one chooses to be in. And yes. HBCUs yeah. now have their own culture and ways that the mainstream culture has to recognize I think that's so interesting
2: yeah, yeah no I, th- I think it's amazing and then you see I mean look even Angelina Jolie's uh, daughter Zahara <gasps> she's now at yes. Spelman she just crossed as a an aka as an aka you can see that people are looking at HBCUs not as just like a place you have to go but a place where a lot of people choose to go.
1: One of the biggest misconceptions I have found when talking to other people about HBCUs is that people think that they're not diverse. They think, oh, all Black people are there, so it's not a diverse environment. Which, when you say that you're telling on yourself, by the way, because you're saying that you think all Black people are the same. So I just want to put that (laughs) out there. (laughs) But my experience at Howard was, it was just one of the most diverse environments I've ever been in. And I live in New York City. Like I had classmates from all over the country around the world, all shades, faiths, cultures, speaking different languages. I had a very specific experience being at Howard in DC, which is a very international city. So it may have been different at a smaller school or something. But like the international students actually had a big impact on the culture of the university. Oh, absolutely. And I remember attending like a, I don't remember the name of it. It might've been like the Miss Face of Africa pageant or something like that. But there were enough African students from the U S and also from the continent where there was a woman representing, I think each country or various countries, but it was like so amazing to see everybody like put on for their country in that way where I was just sitting here and I'm like, wow. And as a result, I had a lot of really incredible intraracial conversations that really just expanded my understanding of Just how varied black people's experiences are. I wonder, like, do you have a memory from your time at Howard that kind of just like broke your brain in terms of understanding how diverse the black experience is?
2: To me, like coming from Durham, North Carolina, then going to Howard, you know, seeing Black people from all over the country, you know, waving different flags, Mm -hmm. doing different dances. I mean, even dance hall was new to me. I didn't know about it. Well, shoot, I didn't know about Go-Go. I didn't, you know, it was all different to me. So seeing all of that, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of different type of Black people. And like the way people interacted with their Blackness was interesting. And it taught me a lot. Like Black people come in all different Viewpoints. I remember there was a protest. George Bush, W. Bush, came to the campus. I might have been there. So he came to the campus, but Mm -hmm. they didn't tell us he was coming. Yes, I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Because they knew people would be upset. Uh This protest and everything. And then Washington Post Person, he wrote a column about it, but it was a black man. He wrote a column about oh, it. Oh, I know
1: exactly who you're you, talking about. You know who I'm know talking exactly about. I didn't want to give the name. About. I, I didn't want to give the name. I understand.
2: I understand. But he said that Howard students were protesting because they couldn't get to their chicken. <laughs> I remember Because it. it was oh Soul God. Food Thursday. And he said they couldn't get to The the, chicken.
1: (laughs) I remember. I remember.
2: And so, obviously, as you know, Howard Seuss, we were offended. I remember talking about it in class, and there was this girl in the class who was like, Well, I don't understand why everybody's so upset because black people do like chicken. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Oh, there are a lot of different types of black people. (laughs) I will never forget. I was just like, there are all sorts of people here. I you know. Aisha, I appreciate that that was the moment. That was the moment. <laughs> you said, oh my gosh. I'm like, there are all kinds of black people.
1: Oh my gosh. That is a beautiful, beautiful moment. <laughs> I remember, I think I got put off of sociology as a minor because I went to a 100 level sociology class. And somebody said something about how after Hurricane Katrina... She said that she prayed a rosary for the people who are suffering, but then after that, that they should just get it together. (laughs) I was like, like like you said, I said, you know what? That is so interesting. That is such an interesting thought. But I mean, I will say there were times where I was completely stymied by something ridiculous that somebody had said, and I was really sitting there almost ready to pull my eyelashes out, like, God, Mm -hmm. why did you place me here? But there were also so many moments where – That would create a dialogue in thinking about that and thinking about the diversity within, you know, the Black experience that that one could be exposed to at HBCU. There's also like another side of that. I have this theory that when you control for one identity among a group of people, like as in how HBCUs Mm -hmm. for the most part control for race, all the other intersecting identities can become more pronounced. And in some ways that can be freeing. Like I remember when I went to Howard, how much I enjoyed identifying as a Midwesterner, as a person from Michigan. Mm. I was just like, oh, and like, <laughs> or identifying as like a, a reformed, recovering theater kid. Like, it was just like, oh, that's like a nice quirk about my personality that I, I hadn't been able to use previously to define myself because- I was around a lot of white kids a lot of the time. Yeah. And so it was like I was one of a, you know, of a few black girls around and that was yeah. kind of the thing. And so the, I think it can be a source of pride but also another thing that I remember from my HBCU experience is things like misogyny, colorism, classism, mm-hmm. homophobia way yeah. more pronounced. I didn't have the experience at home of dealing with a lot of patriarchy. Going to Howard oh. was a big wake up call for me.
2: Oh, really? Yeah. I had, I had all
1: the patriarchy at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, So I didn't really have it. So much. So I went to Howard, I was like, oh, it was like leaving one environment. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm not the black girl here. I am definitely a woman. And that means something. It was like, once that sort of like the the black question was off the table, this other stuff was all way more pronounced for me. And that also came up in some of the essays in your book as well. Talk to me about how you and some of the other writers that are featured in your book experienced those isms in your HBCU experiences.
2: One thing, and I think because I am a journalist, I didn't want it to be a puff piece. I wanted it to be a love letter, but with the understanding that love can be complicated. You can love someone enough to be critical of them because you want them mm-hmm. to be better. And so you have people like Michael Arsenault, who yes, also went awesome to, Howard, to Howard. New York Times best-selling author, who's mm-hmm. a gay Black man who talks about how he dealt with homophobia at mm-hmm. Howard. And and I really wanted that perspective to be there because that's also a part of the Black experience, but it's a part of the Black experience that has not always been embraced. And, you know, Nicole Perkins, who went to Dillard, she's yes. an author and and poet, and mm-hmm. she talks about some of the respectability stuff. I think the respectability thing is... And it was people telling you this is what you need to do, right, to get by in the world. Thankfully, I'm glad that people have challenged that status quo. Yes. And then don't even get into the sexual politics that was, you know, of this girl's fast, this girl's the hoe. Oh, my gosh. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And then none of it (laughs) stuck to the guys. And, And it was interesting reading Nicole's chapter of the book because, you know, she... Went to Diller, which is an HBCU in New Orleans, and she was talking about how kind of retrograde it was that the women who lived in the dorms had a curfew that was earlier than the men. Many HBCUs have some type of curfew policy. Yeah. Not Howard, at least when I was there, it didn't mean that I had to be back in the dorm by a certain time, but you couldn't have anybody of the opposite gender in your room. So people would be trying to sneak people in. I did I <laughs> did I did I did hop you do a fence. You hopped a fence. May two thousand and six. I hopped a fence to get into Carver Hall.
2: Carver. Oh yes. my goodness.
1: Which is a which was a men's dorm back in the day for y'all who don't know. I hopped a fence to break into Carver Hall. Do you know what I had on my feet? Do you know was, the 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 youth the <laughs> knees? And all, I, I was wearing Birkenstock clogs, Aisha climbed a chain link fence was it worth it this is how desperate they had us because we had these curfews <laughs> so we were well, doing We th-
2: always talked about like some girl tried to sneak in to drew which was the uh, the freshman male The freshman dorm boys the oh my god
1: don't be caught there because it was no, yeah, a it bad was like, place to oh, be oh it was a
2: bad place. because then yeah. you're seen as is- too fast.
1: Too fast, yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Someone tried to sneak in in a suitcase or something. That's what someone said. I remember I
1: that rumor about yes, the suitcase, yes. yes. The, su- the suitcase. She had to be tiny. <laughs> Poor girl had to be teeny tiny, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, we were talking about respectability politics and the various isms at HBCUs, be it sexism, homophobia. And I'm glad you got into all that in your book. And yet, you know, these things aren't occurring in a vacuum. You know, these isms were present because they mirror the outside world.
2: Not to be too cheesy, but I think, I think oftentimes you have HBCUs, the students there press to bring the institutions forward. Mm-hmm. You know, at Howard, mm-hmm. there's a very real history of student, student protests and mm-hmm. student activism. And it was the students who forced the creation of an African-American studies department and mm-hmm. African-American history courses.
1: Someone who attends an HBCU can have the benefit of, like you said, being able to learn in an environment, not completely free of all of the isms in the world, but Mm -hmm. free of that specific kind of weight. And speaking for myself, I don't think that I would have been able to do this job or be as confident as a grown person. I don't know if I'd understand as much about the world as I do if I had Mm -hmm. gone to college in a different environment. But I also think about, there's a big historical weight for many Black people to attending college. You know, maybe when your parents or grandparents wouldn't have had the opportunity to get an education at all. On my dad's side, both of his parents are HBCU grads. They both went to Russ College, where they met in Mississippi. But on my mother's side, you know, one of her parents didn't finish elementary school and the other one finished at eighth grade because a lot of people had to work or, you know, families didn't have money for college or went into the service or whatnot. Growing up, when I didn't, feel like doing my homework or something like that when I was in elementary school. I don't know if this ever happened to you. You wrote about yourself as being a really perfect student all through school. (laughs) But like my parents (laughs) would reference like roots and, you know, be like, the slaves had their fingers chopped off for learning how to read, which is dramatic. And I think back and I'm like, oh my God, like that's a lot to put on somebody in third grade. But it's true, you know, And in some ways as an adult, I'm like, I'm glad they told me that because it's important that I knew that. And there's no reason to hide that from me. Right. But with all of that, understanding and history of the meaning and the weight of college. At a PWI, not everybody's coming in the door with that experience or with the knowledge of that experience.
2: Yeah, I think it's a shared, like, even though Black people are not monolithic, there are certain shared dynamics where I think you don't have to explain why this is a big deal.
1: As we discussed, HBCUs have a particular culture, and we talked about where we see that in Beachella, yes. Little Throwback, Stomp the Yard, A Different yes. World, and of course the many, many, many HBCU alumni Kamala Harris, Toni mm-hmm. Morrison, Spike Lee, Taraji yes. P. Henson, yes. for those who yeah. are not yeah. familiar. What does that influence mean? What is the impact? of the influence of HBCU culture and HBCU graduates on the greater culture, the wider culture.
2: Well, I think that you can see it in those places, just like you said, where it's so clear, like music, clothes, fashion, But then it's also just like, I think it's in those alumni who go out and make such a huge mark on the world. You know, I'm blessed to have Oprah Winfrey's in the book. Mm -hmm. And she's a graduate of Tennessee State. She talks about how it was a professor at Tennessee State who convinced her father to let her take her first TV job. The rest... Is obviously history with <laughs> <overwhelming. laughs> So you think about that sort of training and like how that person's been able to affect the world. I think that it's an impact that we don't always see mm-hmm. because it's just, you know, throughout, you know, you'll see like Melanie Parker who is over diversity at Google. Yep. She's a Hampton graduate. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like you don't even always see and know that this is where that person got their training. This is where that person learned this or got this experience or took this turn but we see the impact of it. And you can hear a Brittany Luce and you can hear an Aisha Roscoe sure. and we, you know, and we are HBCU made. You see Anna, Anna B. A. Anna B. And a BA
1: Parker now, and a BA
2: Parker, you know, like, and we, you, so you hear all of these people and all of us are, are have come through this very rich history that is the HBCU, but it's not just history. It's also present day.
1: Yes, 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 yes. So we got a little game for you. Do you have a couple minutes to stick around?
2: Yes, I'm ready. I'm ready to
1: play. Coming up, Aisha and I play a little HBCU trivia.
0: Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card.
3: This message comes from Fisher Investments, who takes a personalized approach to retirement planning, getting to know your finances, family, and lifestyle to tailor your plan and help achieve your goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss.
1: Okay, so this is a game of HBCU trivia. I have a few questions here. To ask you and you got to get them right. If you don't get them right, then Oprah's going to call you. She's
0: going
1: she's to give you a talking to.
0: Oh
2: my goodness. Ooh, I don't know about this. I might not get these right. Let don't let see. Oprah
1: down. Don't let her down. Okay. All right. First question. What percentage of black judges in the United States attended an HBCU? Is it A, 30%, B, 50%, C, 70% or D, 80%. Okay,
2: I think I've given out this quote, So, but I'm really bad with numbers. So I think it's 70%. It's a whole lot of judges went to
1: HBCUs. You're going with 70. <laughs> you are right. It is a whole lot, but it's actually D, 80%. You I was up there. Was you were lot. up there. That's what I was thinking. Was
2: it 70 or 80? It's a whole lot. <laughs>
1: Isn't that
2: wild? 80%. That is crazy. Yes.
1: All right. Next question. Which state has the most HBCUs in the country? A, Georgia. Mm -hmm. B, Florida. Mm -hmm. C, Alabama. Or D, Texas.
2: I thought it was North Carolina because we got a whole bunch of them. They ain't even one of the choices. That was actually my thought too. I'm already off track on this one. I'm going to say... I'm going to say Georgia, but I could... But that may not be
1: right. Georgia. (laughs) (laughs) Georgia. Well, unfortunately, I'm texting Oprah right now. The answer was (laughs) actually C, Alabama.
2: Alabama. Wow. Okay. I should have known that. Yes.
1: Alabama has 15 HBCUs.
2: Oh, my goodness. I did not know that. I really thought it was North Carolina because we got a whole bunch.
1: North Carolina is like New Jersey. You drive two feet, it's a new college.
2: exactly... (laughs)
1: One last question. Which school's majorette dance team inspired Bichella's choreography?
2: I think it's the Dancing Dolls because they have like their whole thing and and it's all about the Dancing Dolls. And I also have a Dancing Doll, one of the originals in the book. I think it was the Dancing Dolls. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) I I finally got one. You
1: are absolutely (laughs) right. You are absolutely right. It was... The Dancing Dolls of Southern University. If you yeah. watch, look, if you watch a good amount of Beyonce choreography, you will see Dancing Dolls eight counts for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, and actually, I believe one of the choreographers that she was working with or one of the, or at, least one, or at least one of the people that was actually in the performance was a dancing doll herself. So oh, there, we yeah. there we go. There we go. Look, Aisha, you got one. Yes. And I think- I got one. You got one. And for that reason- <laughs> Plus the beautiful book that you edited uh, and that wonderful essay that you wrote, I will let it slide. I will not call Oprah on you. Okay, please okay? don't. Please, don't. I, I won't. I will not call Oprah on you. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. I pray that the only time she calls you is to sit in her backyard and she can ask you questions. I know about that why would be you're so, so nice. successful. <laughs> <laughs> Aisha, thank you so much. This has been so much fun to walk down. HBCU memory lane
2: with you today. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. I've had so much fun.
1: Thanks again to Aisha Roscoe. You can hear her on NPR's Weekend Edition and her book, HBCU Made, is out now. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Liam McBain. This episode was edited by Jessica Plachek. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce.
3: Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas, and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone On this week's episode of Wild Card, comedian Bowen Yang says you
1: don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness.
0: I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present. That's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join
3: us for NPR's Wild Card Podcast, the game where cards control the conversation.